Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Okay, so much of this lesson, does anybody, has anybody read the Puritans, the old English Puritans, a few, a few? Some people have maybe a little bit of a, a negative view of them, but, but really the, the English Puritans, I think as much as anything I've ever read, and they're hard to read sometimes, I think that they are really doctors of the soul, like, they're not just telling you about external things, but they really have a way of cutting right to using a scalpel to get right to the very soul, your motives, differing things like that. So this morning's lesson actually comes from this man. He was a, an English Puritan named John Flavel. Now, he's not one of the more commonly known of the Puritans, but in my opinion, he should be. He's very, a very sweet author, a very Christ-centered author. And so I got this lesson directly from a chapter from his book on the, the mysterious union with Christ. I don't remember what it's called, but it's something like that. So all credit to him. That's, that's who's really teaching us this morning uh, from a horizontal perspective. So, um, so I'll have his little caption in the corner if it's a quote from him this morning. Just something fun I did, I guess. I don't know. But uh, Flavel spoke, spoke much of examining one's own heart against this. He called a mere external adhesion to duties of religion. Sounds like a Puritan, doesn't it? External adhesion to duties of religion. So it's in that vein of thought that we're, we're going to talk about those seven points that are on there. So any questions before we get started? John Flavel. John Flavel. All right. First evidence. A convicted spirit. A convicted spirit. When we were lost, we had no convicted spirit, did we? No. So Flavel says that the first work of the Holy Spirit is, are these three things. This is the work. So the first thing is illumination. And the second thing is conviction. And the third thing, and this is why I love reading the Puritans, I always have to get my dictionary out. Compunction. Does anybody know what compunction is? Needing to do it. Uh, I'll define it later. Driven to do it? Mm, Perhaps. Driven to do it. Compunction Junction. I think, I, I think that's it. This illumination, conviction, and compunction also has another name in theology. It is called the effectual call, or the effectual calling, or the inward call. So contrasted with the outward call, it is different. This is what the inward call is. So pretty much everybody is called to repentance, right? When our pastors are up here sharing the gospel and inviting people to come to Christ, that would be considered the outward call or the general call to salvation. But not everybody comes, do they? 
So unless you've had this effectual call upon your life, you will not come. You will not come. That's right. So this is, you know, this outward call is, is what we would say is, is the preaching of the gospel, its missions, and its personal evangelism. So we invite everyone to come to Christ. But the effectual call is something a little different. Here's the definition of it from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So the question is, what is the effectual calling? And it says, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. That might seem really wordy. It is a a little bit of an older English, but if you look at it, it's really very beautiful and very biblical. This is how one comes to Christ. So, Breaking this down in a nutshell, this is the work of the Spirit of God uniting us to Christ. This is the work of the Spirit of God uniting us to Christ. You know, it's not just simply an external understanding of biblical and Christian facts, is it? It's not. It's not. Judas had that, didn't he? He understood the externals. We could even say the devil has that. But it's not worked inwardly with them. So God the Holy Spirit must grant us more than a formal understanding, but rather an inward heart understanding of the magnitude of God's holiness and how far we uh, fall short of that. So it's, it's our need in his, his fullness. So somehow, way, at some point, if you've been united with Christ, uh, you've heard the bad news inwardly that you're a lawbreaker, that you have fallen short. And you've also seen the relief of that. You've seen the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And uh, you've found your, your, um, your relief of that burden, just like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress felt that burden on his back. Well, you have felt that. So the natural person does not accept 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So unless you have that inward illumination from God, you can't understand it. You might understand it here, but you don't understand it here. So I think there are probably many examples of this, when, especially in Jesus' ministry, where he would preach the gospel, and people would just not come. In fact, he had a very, very few followers, really, didn't he? All right, so that's illumination. Conviction naturally follows. Conviction is the act or the process of convincing, the act or process of convincing. And here's a, here's a verse that we can look at that is the work of the Holy Spirit from John chapter 16, where he says... And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So we know that that internal conviction or this process of convincing us of our sin and misery, as the Westminster Catechism said, um, comes from the Holy Spirit. Absolutely comes from the Holy Spirit. 
Yes, sir. A certain amount of conviction that comes from the conscience. Um, I think that all men know the difference between right and wrong, but they don't care. A natural man doesn't care. So until we have that inward illumination and conviction, we, we, we don't care. We don't care. Good question. Darren, can you ask another question? Yes, sir. Depends on what, well, okay. let, let, me, let me try to repeat the question so we can have it within the group and not just okay. us two. So your question was, is the illumination and conviction separate from the effectual call? I think what I'm saying is here's the effectual call, and this is what the effectual call is, is illumination, conviction, and compunction. So we're kind of we're looking over that. Tommy. Isn't that Yes. This is Romans 1. Absolutely. God has revealed himself to all men. Some harden themselves. Absolutely. That's right. They won't come to God for repentance unless they've been illumined and convicted. Conviction, as we use it and apply it here, Darren, I think this might answer your question, is only for the believer. Okay? It's only for the believer. True conviction of sin. To where, in fact, my next verse is going to say it, is Matthew 11 says, what? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this is that general call. But until we feel heavy laden... Until the Spirit has done His work in us to convict us of our sin, to illumine us to God's holiness and our need, we will not come. We will not come. So here's what Flavel, Flavel kind of, well, sorry, maybe I didn't put that quote in there. So uh, Flavel did say, we will not respond to Christ's call until we feel heavy laden. All right, so let's move on to this great word, compunction. Compunction, the compunction junction. Here's, here's the definition I, I have. is It's an inward anxiety resulting from deeply felt guilt. It's an inward anxiety from a deeply felt guilt. And I kind of prefaced it there. So in in Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter was preaching at Pentecost, right? Holy Spirit's moving upon the people. And what do they do? They have this inward anxiety, and so they yell out, Brothers, what shall we do? So Peter gives them the answer. 
So here's what, kind of in summary, what, what, um, what John Flavel says about this. He says, it is in this order, so he's saying illumination, conviction, compunction. He says, in this order, the Spirit draws souls to Christ. He shines into their minds by illumination, applies that light to their consciences by effectual conviction, breaks and wounds their hearts by compunction, and then moves the will to embrace and close with Christ in the way of faith for life and salvation. And so this is our first point today. This is our first evidence uh, of union with Christ. And everyone who is in union with Christ has been through this in some way. Questions so far? Okay. Point number two. The second evidence is a quickened spirit. This is number two. I have them up there, Marilyn. Number, number two. See? Okay, so the second point is a quickened spirit. What do you think this means? What do you think a quickened? What does quickening mean? An anticipation for something coming. An anticipation for something coming. Not exactly. Coming back from the dead. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's new life. Ephesians 2.5 tells us this. The old King James uses the word quickened here for made alive. So even when we were dead in our trespasses, he quickened us together with Christ, or he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So this is the second evidence uh, that we have been united with Christ. So not only are we effectually called by illumination, so on and so on, but we're given new life and a new heart that is willing and able to believe and to repent. And we are broken free from sin and cleaving to our new love. And what is our new love? It's Christ. It's our blessed Redeemer. And so it is that if, if we have been united to Christ in our effectual call, we have experienced quickening. What are some, maybe some other words for quickening? Resurrection. I was looking for regeneration. New birth. Restoration. All a part of it. But I like regeneration and new birth. Regeneration and new birth. That's what a quickened spirit actually is. And I've heard many testimonies during baptisms here where people will quote Ezekiel 36 as something that has happened to them. That that. The heart of stone has been removed, and it's been replaced by a heart of flesh. So this is what's happened to us. So this is what Ezekiel 36 tells us. It says, I will sprinkle, and this is a preview, I think, from the Old Testament. You know how the old, anyway. A preview of this doctrine of regeneration. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we can't do this without union with Christ and having this new life within us. 
So if we have new life with God, we'll have certain inward consciousness when there is something that impedes our communion with God. See what I'm saying? So if we truly have been united with Christ, we have communion with God, and when something comes between that, what do we feel? I'm asking you. What do we feel when we don't have communion with God? Emptiness? Conviction? What's that? Worthlessness? What else? Disconnected? Dirty? Weakness? You don't have another schoolhouse rock? I'm just kidding. Here's what Flavel said. We, we sense, we, we, we feel fear. We feel grief. We feel indignation. We feel jealousy. And we feel anger. You know, just think of Paul in Romans chapter 7. This is a man who had felt his lack or his, his lack of, something had impeded his communion with God. And what did he cry out? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? This is what... So, in contrast, what do we feel when we are in communion with God in this new life that he has given us? What do we feel? Joy. What else? Security. Content. Completeness. Confidence. Peace. These are all really good. Again, here's, here's what Flavel says. The one thing we feel is love and joy and peace and rest. How many of you in here have struggle with finding rest? I think we all do. We all struggle with that to some degree. So one who is united to Christ is taken on the yoke of Christ in fellowship with him and is finding rest in him. So, uh, according to Flavel, here's the other side of it. If you have no hungerings or thirstings after Christ, how can the Holy Spirit of God be in you? So again, another manifestation. And one of our great duties is to know and to remind ourselves that we are new creations created in Christ Jesus. We find this in Romans 6.11. Romans 6.11 tells us, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is a great thing to do in the morning, isn't it? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and say, all right, Baumberger, you're dead. You're dead, but you're alive to God in Christ. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us to preach to ourselves, doesn't he? Don't listen to yourself. Preach to yourself. This is a good one right here. Romans 6.11. You're dead, but you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right, so the second evidence is a quickened spirit. Number three, a loving spirit. A loving spirit. All right, so it's like this. God first loved us, and the Holy Spirit pours that love into us. We see that from Romans chapter 5. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it is that being given to us, I think that we can say that that's how God proves that he loves us. He gives himself to us. Where do we find that? 
Like John 3.16? What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What about Galatians 2.20? Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we see this acting of God that he loves us first, right? So we see that here, 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. So he has given himself to us. We respond in love. There's three things that I can say that, well, I didn't say it. Flavel said it, but I'm going to tell you what he said. There's three things that he said that we love. What do you think the first one is? We've already said it this morning. You love yourself? I wasn't going there, Dan, but we do love ourselves. That's true. But when this work is done, that's not the first thing we think of. We don't think, oh, I really love me. We love Christ. We love Christ first. All right. The venerable doctor said this. They that are so nearly united to him as members to the head cannot but love him and value him above their own lives. So he's very, Flavel's very quick to point this out. This love is not motivated by what we receive from him, but by who he is. A very clear distinction. And I, I quote another Puritan on this, Stephen Charnock. And he said this, to love God only for his benefits is to love ourselves first and him secondarily. To love God for his own goodness and excellency is a true love of God, a love of him for himself. So brothers and sisters, this is, you know, as I'm putting this together and putting these quotes, these things are looking at me and saying, do I love God for God or do I love him for his benefits? So first we love Christ and second we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. So what does Christ love? What does Christ love? Righteousness. He loves his people. Yeah, he loves, he loves holiness. You know, consider all of the put-ons and put-offs. We're going through that right now in Ephesians 4. All the put-ons, all the put-offs. Consider and contrast the works of the Spirit with the fruit of the flesh from Galatians 5. You know, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, on and on. Contrast that with love, joy, peace, patience. That's what Christ loves. And so therefore, if this work has been done in us, if we are united with Christ, that's what we love. And we hate these other things. And therefore, as somebody said, I don't know who it was, but somebody said, we will also, the third thing we will love is we will love the body of Christ. We will love the body of Christ. Again, quoting Flavel, What at peace with the Father and at war with the children? It cannot be. Surely in that day we are reconciled to the Lord. We are reconciled to all his people. We all then love a Christian as a Christian. And by this we may know that we have passed from life unto death. See, another assurance that's been given there is, do you love? 
do you love? Jesus himself gave us, un, as the Puritans would say, an 11th commandment. What was the 11th commandment? Close. How about this? John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you. See how they get that? The 11th commandment? Anyway. Just as, uh, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you, are, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Another evidence of this effectual call, of this union with Christ, is do we love? Do we love Christ? Do we love what Christ loves? And do we love the body of Christ Questions? We're moving on. Okay. Point number four. A mortifying spirit. A mortifying spirit. Where will we find the mortification of sin in the Bible? Does anybody know? Romans 8.13. Very good. Very good. Romans 8.13 tells us, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, or we could substitute mortify, you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, what kind of, what kind of work do you think mortification is? Easy? It's not easy. It, it, you know, I, I think of like these horror movies where, you know... You, Finally, finally get the, the, what would it be, the, the antagonist down, and then all of a sudden they pop up again. Ah, you didn't really kill me. That's what I think of, of sin as being, and that's, that's how I picture it, mortification of sin. And if we're honest, isn't how sin kind of creeps back up in our lives? It really does. Now, to be clear, mortification is not totally the total elimination of sin. It's not. It's not. And there are some, some doctrines that teach that, this perfectionism, but that's not what it is. But it is an undermining of the stronghold of sin's dominion in our souls. So it's an undermining of the stronghold of sin's dominion in our souls. Again, to quote Flavel, he says, The Spirit of God implants habits of a contrary nature which are destructive to sin and are purgative of corruption. See, another dictionary word right there, huh? What do you think purgative means? Purges, purges. And I, I'm, this may be funny, and I'm not really trying to be funny, but I think of a laxative, you know? Purges. It just it eliminates. There's a good picture for you, isn't it? Sorry about that. But anyway, this is what the Spirit does. We purge sin from our lives. We mortify it. We have a new nature that's been implanted in us. You know, John Owen wrote a whole book on this topic, on that verse, in true Puritan fashion. You know, a whole book on one verse. I love it. I love it. It's called The Mortification of Sin and Believers. Here's here's one of the more famous quotes or well-known quotes from that book. And he says this, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? 
Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. And then this, this might be a part that people are familiar with. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. That's the danger. That's the danger of not mortifying sin. So is sin your enemy? And have you made war with it? That's a, a good question we can all ask this morning. Have you made war with sin in your life? All right, so how do we mortify sin? How do we do that? I'm going to give you, I think we have time, yeah. There's four ways in which we mortify sin, okay? Just this is a really loose and short paraphrase of of John Owen here. But the first thing we do is we hate it. We hate it. So we consider what sin did to our Lord on the cross. You know, he became sin who knew no sin, right? He was the perfect spotless lamb of God, but he took all of our sin upon himself. You know, consider the end result of sin. What is the end result of sin according to Romans 6.23? It's death. The wages of sin is death. And consider this, that our sin grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit of God. The second way is we starve it. We starve it. Does anybody know James 4, 7 off the top of your head? I'll give you the first word. Resist. Very good. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we starve it. We don't give it a second thought. We have a temptation to sin. I'm not giving in. I'm not getting close to that line. I'm leaving it. I'm going to let it wither on the vine, so to speak. I'm going to resist the devil, and it's going to, and, and I have a promise right here. That's a great promise. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The third thing is we corner it. We corner it. What do you picture when you think of cornering something? Anybody ever been cornered? Marilyn's been cornered? For some reason, I believe that. I'm not even going to ask. All right, so cornering something, right? Like you see a, a cat cornering a mouse. Yeah, trapping it. So we replace, there are certain triggers in our lives, aren't there? There are certain triggers that we have to sin, whatever those triggers might be. And we replace it with something better. We corner it. And we replace it with something better. So what if you have an issue with lust, for instance? How would we corner that? How would we replace that with something better? Eliminate the avenues by which it comes to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people don't take their kids to the mall, quite honestly. They're, they're teenagers, they're kids, whatever. You know? There's, there's a lot of stuff there that might be temptations that, that we ought not see. What else? Maybe think of how beautiful fidelity is with your wife or your husband, right? Think about fidelity there. What about gossip? How can we corner gossip? telling good things about a person, speaking well of somebody, making sure. And you know what? When we encourage somebody, 
Isn't there something good that comes back to us every single time? Words of encouragement, always. They always have a, have a twofold thing. What about envy? What if we envy or covet? How can we replace that? How can we corner that? Give? Very good. Praise? Be grateful? I, I think of just thinking of eternity. You know, we already have an inheritance that's beyond all measure. We have it already awaiting us. So who cares what we don't have here? Who cares? All right, the fourth thing is we overwhelm it. We overwhelm sin. We overwhelm it. I I think of a song, Mike, that we sing, You're Not Guilty Anymore. You're not guilty anymore. Does that not overwhelm sin? You've been set free. You overwhelm sin by preaching the power of the gospel of grace to yourself. You overwhelm it. You overwhelm it. So does sin cause great distress in your soul? little self-seeking here. And again, not because of its consequences, but because it breaks communion with God. That's a question I have for me and for all of us this morning. Does sin cause this great distress? John Flavel said, If there is no desire to mortify sin, then there is no union with Christ. Pretty, pretty plain and simple there. All right, so the fourth way is mortification of sin. Okay, any questions? Rick? I don't know. <laughs> it feels that way, doesn't it? So I know this. If, if a, a sinful thought comes to my mind, I want to corner it. But it certainly feels that. I don't know. I don't, does anybody have a better answer than that? Is it, yeah, the temptation? Is that what you're saying, Rick? Or the thought... I, I don't know. Let me let me uh, let me write that down in my Mary Beth. Yeah. Good. Daniel. I think if we remember that Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, I think that helps answer the question. Because he, having been tempted, did not sin. Mm-hmm. So while the temptation is there, and if we dwell on it, act upon it, and not do these four steps that we talked about earlier, then it becomes sin. But the temptation of the thought itself. Okay. Does that help, Rick? Very good. 
Maybe a second thought. I don't know. Don't give it a second thought. Mr. Carter. Yeah. Philippians 4.8, talking about what we're to think on, things that are pure, things that are good, on and on. So, very good. I'm going to move on here. Okay. Okay. The fifth point is a praying spirit. And if you sitting here in your seat this morning are like me, this might make you squirm a little. It may not. Praise the Lord if it doesn't. But it it makes me squirm just a little bit. So we know what the Bible says about prayer. So Jesus was saying in that parable of uh, the persistent widow, he said, men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Paul said, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, uh, it's supposed to say, be made. Does it? Good, I corrected it there, but not on my notes here. All right, be made for all people. And how's this one? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. There's a a sermon and and therefore a subsequent booklet uh, by J.C. Ryle called A Call to Prayer. Um, Unless you're serious, don't don't read it. it. It's pretty rough. But he says this. This is how he starts it. He says, do you pray? The question is one that none but you can answer. Whether you attend public worship or not, your minister knows. Whether you have family prayers or not, your relations know. But whether you pray in private or not is a matter between yourself and God. And he he gets really down to the nitty-gritty, and he says, I mean, obviously they didn't have cars when, maybe they did, I don't know. But, But he's saying, you know, driving to work, that's not prayer as you're praying. He's talking about you must get alone with God in closet prayer. So I didn't say it. Just saying. He said it. It's good stuff. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip this. Uh, this was a really good comment by another Puritan pastor. But um, Spurgeon said this, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this. The measure of the intensity of your prayer. The measure of the intensity of your prayer. That's a gauge. So maybe if somebody asks, how you doing? Maybe the first question you say is, What's my, how's my prayer life? Then you can answer them. I'm not doing so well. All right, so what are some reasons that we don't spend time in private prayer? Two or three of you. Excuses? Yeah, sure. Why don't we? Honestly, why don't we, Shelly? Yeah. 
We do, so quickly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yes, sir. Right, yeah. And, and living the Christian life is not easy. It's not. Yes, sir, you had a comment. Yeah, that's just blind optimism, isn't it? And we're all guilty of that, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. We'll move on here. All right, so if we are united to Christ, though, if we are united to Christ, we will have a prayerful spirit. We will have a prayerful and praying spirit. Number six, a heavenly-minded spirit. John Flavel said this. He said, wherever the spirit of grace inhabits, there is a heavenly spiritual frame of mind accompanying and evidencing the indwelling of the spirit. In other words, we can say with, Christ, with, with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's gain. Why is it gain? We get to go to perfection. Why else? We will see him. What's sin going to be like in, in eternity? It's not going to be there. It will not be there. Don't you look forward to that day when there isn't even the slightest hint of a temptation, temptation thought? Nothing. Nothing. You all are going to like me totally <laughs> and completely. I look forward to that. I really do. All right. All right. True or false? If we desire the things of earth more than heavenly things, then we are carnally minded. If we are spiritual, our desire is for that which is heavenly. True or false? True. Paul told us in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. I think, Keith, that's kind of in conjunction with Romans 8. Set your mind on things that are above and not things that are on the earth. Again, to quote Flavel, If therefore thy heart and affections be habitually earthly and wholly intent upon the things below, driving eagerly after the world as the great business and end of thy life, Deceive not thyself. This is not the fruit of the new creature, nor consistent with it. So to be heavenly minded is another evidence that we have been united with Christ. And I am out of time, it looks like. So let's go through this. An obedient spirit is the last thing. An obedient spirit. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and skip to something here. Well, first of all, an obedient spirit is not just, as he said, mere adhesion to external duties of religion. That is not obedience. No. Everyone agree? Agreed. Agreed? Okay. We see the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, 
O my God, your law is within my heart. And so on your outline, this is the last point. There are nine points, and I'll tell you what that's from. There's a, a, another, another Puritan pastor named Samuel Bolton, and he wrote a book uh, that's called The True Bounds of Christian Freedom. And it's really the, the, the use, uh, well, he, he basically talks about the difference between law and grace. And so what he, this, this is, uh, I think, chapter 9 or something like that. But uh, that's worth the price of the book, just this chapter 9. Okay, so what he does is he gives us uh, a contrast between what he calls legal and evangelical obedience, okay, or gospel. Let's just say it like that. Legal obedience and gospel obedience, okay? So here they go. Whoops. A slavish spirit versus a childlike spirit. Is your obedience burdensome or is it a delight? Yeah, that was number two. Number three, conviction of conscience. And we all kind of think, oh, maybe that one's okay. Uh Uh-uh. Bolton says, or is it a necessity of your new nature? Is it necessity of nature? Number four, satisfaction in duty versus satisfaction in Christ. Number five, shell versus substance. Whitewashed tombs. You know, I think of the Pharisees there. Performance as self-righteousness versus performance as Christ's righteousness. Formality versus fervency. Duty only when pressured versus duty continually with happiness. So do you feel pressured or are you happy to obey? And the last one is duty with reluctance versus duty with delight. All right, so if if Christ's commands are a delight to us, uh, this is the seventh and final evidence uh, that one has been united to the Spirit. You know, so as I said, union with Christ is a mystery. These evidences are not. And so what have we really been talking about as much as anything is the doctrine of assurance. The doctrine of assurance. Can you have assurance? Let me ask that. Can you? I believe we can. Romans 8.16 tells us this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And I believe that this is a good seven-point summary of how we have this internal witness or internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. All right, so in your quest for assurance, use these as evidences of your union with Christ. And I ask this question, are they important to you? And nobody does them perfectly, but are you growing in these evidences? So this is all I have. Any questions or comments? Quick. Bolton. Yes. All right. Let's pray. Father, it's good to delve into your word and to have the scalpel of your word uh, prick our consciences and and to challenge us to to know that, that, yes, we still need grace every day in our life and we still fall short 
And we are still that wretched man so many times. But we thank you for the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives to give us new affections, new desires um, as we walk every day. I pray, God, that this has been a help, not just to me, but to all of us here, to look at ourselves, to know that we are new creations created in union with Christ Jesus, and help us, God, to be vessels of your mercy and to, and to be those that shine like the sun, uh, reflecting the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.